This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. Welcome to episode number three of the UU Perspective, where we provide weekly interviews with today's most inspiring Unitarian Universalists. Again, I'm Sharon Merrill, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and a member of the Unitarian Universalist Society of Cleveland. This show is going to focus on UU sharing their involvement in the community and the impact that they are making through their passion to make a difference. You'll hear what they've discovered in their journey, what they've done and how they've made a difference, and the impact they hope to see for the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations from your fellow UUs around the world. My guest is Carrie Stewart. She's from Colleyville, Texas, and she is the owner and principal of One World Consulting. Carrie has served various communities and organizations in their quest for greater understanding and inclusion of diverse individuals. She's a lifelong UU, and throughout her life, she's been involved in 13 congregations in five districts. She currently serves as a Southwest UUC and Southern Region Smart Church Consultant. She specializes in anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multicultural inclusion, right relations, conflict transformation, compassionate communication, leadership, governance, and stewardship. Additionally, she also serves on the Southwest UUC board, also the Journey Toward Wholeness Transformation Committee of the UUA. She also serves on the UU Allies for Racial Equality Steering Committee and is a DBLE staff member. She has two children. They are teenagers and our third generation UUs. So let's get to it. And here is Carrie. She's going to be talking about the new Jim Crow classes and also the smart church consultant work that she does. Here's Carrie. Okay, UUs, let's get started. I am simply thrilled to introduce my guest today, Carrie Stewart. Now, I've given you guys just a little overview about Carrie, but uh, let's just take a minute. And Carrie, can you tell us about yourself and about the role you play inside the UU community? Because everybody kind of wants to get to know you a little bit better. Sure. Um, I am a lifelong UU. Um, I have been a member of now 13 different congregations in five different districts. Um, currently a member of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas uh, here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And um, I've had a number of lay leading roles. Uh, currently um, in my congregation, I've been leading workshops and classes and, and doing forums on, um, based on Michelle Alexander's book called The New Jim Crow, um, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Um, but uh, I'm also on the steering committee of Allies for Racial Equity. I'm also a member of the Journey Toward Homeless Transformation Committee uh, of the UUA board. I have been on the district board, and I'm going back on the district board. I'm a uh, district and South Re- Southern Region congregational consultant and smart church consultant. I have been the resource person for anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multiculturalism in districts for about 15 years, I think. And I think that's about it. 
That's a lot. You are yes. totally immersed. Totally immersed. Totally immersed. Yes. Oh, that's great. Well, one thing I'd like to talk about, uh, it's very curious about, is the the new Jim Crow classes that you you do now. Are you leading those? Yes, I'm actually co-leading them with another member at First Dallas, James Snell, who uh, happens to be a uh, trustee on the UUA board. So we were in, um, because I'm of my role in the Journey Short Wholeness, the UUA requires any committee and board members to go through a um, uh, an anti-racism or anti-oppression multicultural class. They offer it every other year um, right after GA. And so uh, James and I happened to be in the same class when GA was in Louisville, and um, we drove home together. <laughs> so we got to know each other pretty well and kind of cooked this idea up. Um, you know, both had read Michelle Alexander's book, and I'm a diversity and inclusion professional by profession. Um, I'm a trainer, and, and so this is my passion to begin with. Uh, what Michelle Alexander's book really did is sort of switch my focus. Um, her positive is that uh, because of mass incarceration, it's become the new Jim Crow. So for uh, black Americans, we have had slavery, and then we had Jim Crow, and mass when Jim Crow went away, it didn't take long before the system to start um, implementing another way of having a second-class cast of citizens. Um, so if you read the headlines, you know, you know that uh, black Americans are imprisoned at a much higher rate than, uh, than white Americans, mm-hmm. virtually the same crimes. Yeah, she focuses on the drug war quite a bit um, because this, was a bit, this has been a very effective tool in implementing mass incarceration for people of color. Um, and that uh, what the research shows is that in all races use, you know, whites, Hispanics, and blacks use drugs at about the same rate. But um, blacks in particular and, and all people are, are incarcerated at a much higher rate. Um, and so this was really, it was interesting reading her book. Um, she lays out, you know, she's a civil rights attorney, and she lays out the case very effectively. And there wasn't much in the book that I didn't know, but the way she connects the dots was just brilliant. So it really, professionally, it kind of helped me refocus where I wanted to work um, and, uh, and put my efforts and so you, in creating these classes, these are, and this is specific to uh, to what you have created, right? These aren't anything that's within, you know, the UU community in the United States. Well, or yeah. Well, actually, a couple of years ago, this book was the common read. You know, every year the UUA puts out a common read. And, um, and they also developed a reading guide so that people in congregations can do exactly that, have some discussions on what the common read is, what they're encouraging, you know, all you use to read. And um, and it was very interesting because the year before it was, um, the book, the common read was The Death of Hosseline, right, uh, around the time when we were having Justice GA in Phoenix. And they produced a wonderful guideline. I did classes on that book as well. And it was interesting, the, the guide for... The New Jim Crow was only three pages. It was um, not very substantive at all, which brings up a whole bunch of issues, you know, from my work on the Journey Toward Homeless Transformation Committee. But um, so I've actually got a number, I think 
four or five different study guides that have been produced based on this book, none of them by Michelle Alexander, most of them by other faith-based organizations. Um, and so, uh, yes, James and I have sort of cobbled together pieces from, from that. I should also say that um, we were not the first in our area to do this. Um, uh, Reverend Kathy Edwards, who's a minister at Hope um, Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, Louis Morris, um, who is also a select board member and a member of First Jefferson in Fort Worth, um, we've also I've also worked with them on classes for this. So there's sort of a team of us now <laughs> that have put together um, courses of varying length. So James and I have done it over six weeks, you know, one hour on a Sunday. Um, Louis and I have taught it for a weekend-long track at our fall leadership conference here in Oklahoma. Okay. Um, and Kathy and Kathy and Lewis have had a class up at our uh, at our summer institute. So, okay. So, what now? Tell us about what is involved in the classes when you're doing them. So, um, the woman it's, it's very convenient because she wrote six chapters of this book, <laughs> and so we have divided the chapters into classes, and they cover sort of. Um, as I mentioned, you know, she lays out a very convincing argument. And so each of the chapters sort of uh, takes you through um, the different pieces that have been put together uh, to make mass incarceration very effective at, as Michelle puts it, making a whole class of citizens that you don't have to care about. So, um, you know, how they've completely criminalized uh, the use of drugs and how they've added on once you have a drug conviction how they've added on all of these other things, like you can't live in public housing, you can't get a student loan, you can't vote. Um, it's just a snowball effect. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, um, I was going to say, inside of the classes, what what are the your people's what are their reactions, and what's the impact that it's having? People are shocked because you know, again, even for me, you know, there isn't anything in the book. But I didn't know, but the way she connects the dots, um, over the last so, uh, 40 years, um, sort of the get tough on crime, you know, politics came into being and the, the drug war um, was happening. Um, there's been a slow erosion of, also of all of our civil rights and more and more power and money being funneled to um, uh, actually even down to local police offices to do drug interdiction. And so that's why we see, you know, out on the streets, we see police departments with SWAT team type equipment. Well, that is all money that's come from the drug war. Wow. You know, and more and more money is being funneled through the Department of Justice while our um, resources for education and health, which would be, you know, where any combating of drug use would be more effective has been, you know, decimated. So. Wow. Okay. And is, would you say that's kind of the biggest shocker for people or, you know, what, what is anything else? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I think, uh, so I was an American studies major in college, so I look at it, you know, what is it about American society? So part of, part of what happens in our society is, you know, we kind of have a, um, a short-term memory, right? So we don't, Think about our history. We don't contextualize things very often. Um, I'm making best generalizations here, but um, so I think 
you know, people see the situations kind of in a more or less current frame, and they don't realize what the precursors are to that, okay? Mm -hmm. So the way that this all happened is that, well, we had Jim Crow, and then, you know, we passed all kinds of laws to outlaw Jim Crow, um, but... And this, this kind of relates to my work as a smart church consultant because we know from systems that systems uh, will, you know, they want to not change. We call that homeostasis. And so any kind of change to a system, it will try to revert back. So right. while there was a, you know, a lot of glory in the 60s and the civil rights era in the 50s and 60s, um, the, the bounce back or the rubber band sort of effect has been to you know, launched this Get Tough on Crime um, efforts and the war on drugs, which, you know, in a time where actually crime has been falling steadily. Almost out of self-preservation, people kind of revert, revert back. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's um, disguised in other means, you know, and we've, we've developed a whole sort of coded language. I don't know if you remember back when O.J. Simpson was first on trial, um, and they published his picture on the cover of Time. They actually darkened his skin. Wow. Uh, on the cover, yeah. And so through the use of media, we've all been able to get a picture in our mind of who a criminal is, and it's usually a person with dark skin. Wow. Oh, that's that's shocking in itself. Oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's all these little pieces that have all gone together to, you know, she calls it the rebirth of caste, you know, creating the second class of citizens, um, and then attaching, um, well, then the street three strikes law, for example, on drug use, so that, you know, you keep people locked up. And then you look at the research of who is actually in jail and how people are being sentenced according to their race. Um, and then again, all those add-ons, once you are a drug felon, you are, there's so many onerous things put on you, including having to pay your own fines and pay for your own probation and all these fees that a person who not only hasn't been working, but then is locked out of, you know, there's what they call the, the box on job applications where mm -hmm. people have been convicted by a phone. They don't get that, so they can't get work. So what choices are you giving them <laughs> except to go back to possibly, you know, drug dealing? Oh, right. Well, in working with this and finding out what's going on, I mean, are people taking action? Is that the goal of this, or is it more well, informative? Well, I think, I think, yeah, we're trying to figure it out. You know, we know for sure this is not something we can do by ourselves. So, um, you know, we really need to work in partnership. Uh, when we had Justice GA in Phoenix, the reason that our witness event uh, made such an impact is because of our partnerships with people on the ground. And it's happening now in North Carolina with Moral Mondays. Um, you use are partnering with other folks uh, to bring this to force. So we have to somehow um, leverage partnerships on eliminating the new Jim Crow, <coughs> excuse me, in mass incarceration, because uh, we're, you know, we're a small but mighty group. Um, exactly. So it's going to take that. It's going to take some figuring out how we can leverage other people who are uh, sympathetic to this. What actions are you guys taking at this point? Well, like I said, we're still figuring out who we can um, partner with um, in, in doing this work. We have, uh, in Dallas, we have a district attorney who's very interested in this. We have a sheriff who's a black American, and we have a, a sheriff who's a female and a Latina, 
um, he was also very interested in looking at this. So we're having, you know, discussions with folks locally uh, to talk about it. And what would the ultimate goals be in working with those partnerships? Uh, well, first of all, it's always awareness. Because as you said, you know, and even for me, uh, these things have been happening, but we don't realize what their total impact is for um, all of this, uh, you know, basically what our government has done. Um, between Supreme Court decisions that kind of have eviscerated, you know, the Fourth and the Sixth Amendment, um, and particularly regarding search and seizure, uh, to, you know, the executive branch in um, uh, creating budgets, and the Congress in creating budgets that funnel all this money to police departments. So uh, it's raising that awareness, you know, is the first step. And what else after that, after the awareness? Well, I don't know. You know, we don't know. We don't know what the future is going to be. It's kind of like with um, the uh, police brutality movement, which is a, a part of this situation. Uh, we'll see what kind of effect that mass demonstrations and activists will have. Um, and certainly, you know, we have young people of color who are leading this movement and part of our job, particularly I'm a white person as a, as a white uh, ally, you know, how can I support what um, our young people of color are demanding in terms of justice? So we're looking to that um, for uh, all their leadership. So that sounds like just even having conversations then with them to, to find out even their needs and really work together to create more unity. Right, and we've been trying to, uh, you know, encourage uh, folks in the um, witness, uh, in Multicultural Growth and Witness Department at the UUA uh, to help guide us on that. Oh, okay. And certainly in our national voice would, would, you know, have more leverage and, and more um, impact in forming partnerships with folks. And even and giving the message out to all UUs, you know, mm -hmm. not just here in Dallas. Right, right. And hopefully, you know, this podcast is going to get that out and more people are going to be aware of it and can possibly give you guys some support, too. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, now, what if people want to learn more about even creating these classes in their congregations, what can they do? Sure. Um, the, uh, well, first of all, they need to get the book. So I'm going to be there and buy that. And um, and it's great to get the paperback because the paperback edition has a foreword by Cornell West, which the original edition, does, the hardcover, doesn't have. Um, and, you know, he's going to be our wear lecturer at General Assembly in Portland this year. So they want to do that. And, um, and then read the book. And then uh, on the UUA website, there, there is a study guide to, uh, you know, if you want to just use it for yourself or if you want to hold a group discussion. Um, there are also resources listed there for um, other study guides, like I've mentioned. Um, and folks can always contact me. Great. And uh, what we'll put we'll put links in the show notes as far as uh, the name of the book, the author, and uh, your email. I don't know. Did you want to give your email right now? Sure. It's Carrie uh, C A R R I E L Stewart S T E W A R T. It's all one word at gmail.com. Great. That's wonderful. Uh, let's, I want to ask a little bit about uh, the Smart Church. Sure. And tell us a little bit about 
what that is? Um, so uh, Smart Church Consulting is based on the work, uh, on the system's work of, um, well, there's sort of a lineage. <laughs> uh, Peter Steinke, who was a, is a Lutheran minister, uh, wrote a couple of books called Healthy Congregation and Leading Congregations in Anxious Times. And his work is built on family systems theory, which was developed by um, uh, a number of people. Um, Edwin Freeman, who was a therapist, and um, Bowen. I'm blanking on his first name, but there is the Bowen Center for Family Systems um, who holds training classes, which a number of our uh, field staff have taken. And then they, in turn, have trained us. Um, now, healthy congregations is a term that Peter Steinke uses, so um, some of our uh, regional staff has um, renamed it Smart Church. So Smart Church Consulting is about um, helping congregations be as, as uh, smart or as healthy as possible. And we go through the lens of family systems, so, um, which is a concept that comes from biology, <laughs> cell biology. And so we use terms like, uh, as I mentioned before, systems are, in order to stay healthy, they are resistant to change, right? So they keep out viruses, hopefully. Um, and we call that homeostasis, right? Right. And um, we also talk about um, a triangulation in conversations, you know, when people aren't speaking directly to one another, which is a preferred way of doing it instead of, uh, you know, if you get upset with one person, you go and tell another person, and you try to get that person to go back to the first person, kind of to fight your battle for you. <laughs> and so we talk about that, and we talk about um, that really in, le in congregational leadership, the most important thing you can bring is your own presence and functioning. So, uh, you know, an ideal leader will be a non-anxious presence in a congregation where there's all kinds of anxiety, right, about you know, Sunday morning, about staff, about the building, about money. Um, and so it's understanding um, where those different anxieties come from. You know, often they're focused on the minister, and if we could just get rid of the minister or the board president, then everything would be fine. You know, we call that identifying the patient. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and oftentimes the person bringing the alarm, um, you know, is someone who worries about things, and so we call those folks the symptom bearer. So um, these are just ways of understanding how uh, congregational systems work. And do you think uh, as you go through this and do this, does it bring more of a cohesiveness and retention to the congregates as far as uh, staying with the group? It, well, yeah, it's funny. One of the things, um, so we teach uh, family systems. Not only do we um, go out and consult with congregations, but in our uh, leadership experiences that we have every summer, um, we teach this. And, you know, we have, it, so a lot of congregational leaders are in there, including congregational presidents. And we ask, okay, how many former presidents do you have who are still members of your congregation? And oftentimes it's none or very few because, uh, you know, without the kind of tools and resources and this kind of knowledge, you know, we tend to heat up our, our board presidents. Um, and so this really helps leaders for themselves kind of maintain an even keel and a balance when um, 
you know, a lot is being asked of them. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we do see that that uh, that loss of congregates, and no matter whether when you're talking about just solving problems face to face, go to the person that the problems with. You know, when you're not doing that, it just creates havoc, and we lose members that way. Right. Yeah. Right. Because no one people do not want to be in a conflictual situation. So, especially new folks. They can sort of smell it <laughs> a mile away when, when a church is in conflict. And the funny thing about conflict and systems is that, you know, uh, conflicts kind of stay in the life of the congregation. You know, people can be gone for years, but that conflict is still being waged out. There might be different players, but the same conflict kind of, you know, the same situation comes up over and over again. Or it lives with your eldest member who brings it up at the yearly meetings, you know. <laughs> yeah, or it doesn't even have to be a person. I was a member of a congregation that um, had huge dreams and aspirations uh, to build a very large church, and that didn't work out, and they ended up leasing um, space in sort of uh, an office park, um, and it was very nice. But whenever anything went wrong in the congregation or when any issue came up or any challenge, Sort of, it was always blamed on the space <laughs> oh. instead of dealing with that issue directly. But because this big aspiration of building this large church didn't come to fruition, the story that they told about the congregation and about um, the people was that, you know, it wasn't about the people, it was about the building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Is, is this yeah. something that, yeah. Uh, it's ongoing. I, uh, are you working with congregates, um, doing classes on this? Um, yes. Um, it's largely been our field staff who have been, um, you know, doing workshops and leading classes. Um, our, our cadre of smart church consultants kind of are ready to go out to congregations who need help. We are certainly not used as often as... Um, uh, we'd like to be, um, you know, and we wish congregations would call on us more often. <laughs> ah, okay. Because I see, in my experience, going traveling around to congregations, you know, we have um, a great, a huge number of well-meaning people who are, you know, giving their lifeblood to congregations and, and really trying, you know, I mean, we have, for the most part, pretty well-educated members, and they're trying to do everything in their power and knowledge and skill set to be successful and get their congregation going to where, to where they want to be. But without these particular skills, you know, that apply directly to congregations, I, um, I just see them struggle, you know, unnecessarily. Right. So. Yeah. Is this something uh, kind of specific to you, your area, the southern states and... Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, Connie Goodbread, who is one of our congregational life consultants, some of our field staff, um, studied with uh, Peter Steinke, and our lead, Ken Herto, um, studied with Edwin Freeman. So they are very versed in this um, and, and have uh, you know, worked with the whole Southern Region staff and um, with a number of congregational leaders. So it's very well-known out here. 
Okay. Is there any, uh, again, a website or anything to get more information on the Smart Church? Um, if they go to the uuasouthernregion.org website, mm-hmm. there should be information there. Okay. Great. All right. Um, now, I have a uh, universal question that we always ask all our guests. And so I'd like to ask that of you. And it is, how is Unitarian Universalism, as a religious denomination, uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? Well, this comes from my own particular bias, um, but I think that uh, racial justice um, should be the center of our faith. I think our faith compels us to create that beloved community that we all seek. And so if we make um, racial and social justice kind of the cornerstones of our work and the focus of our work, I think we can literally change the world. Wow, that's wonderful. Wow, that's great. Okay, then lastly, I would like you to give me your quote that kind of runs your philosophy in life and guides you. Sure. Um, there are, you know, as a good UU, I have multiple sources and quotes um, that uh, I think about and I look to to help uh, give me inspiration and keep me motivated. But <clears throat> one I use sort of on an everyday uh, basis is from Marianne Williamson, and uh, Nelson Mandela often quoted this. But it is, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Nice. And that's it. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. I appreciate you taking the time out to uh, be with me and create this uh, wonderful podcast to put out the information to everyone. You're welcome, Sharon. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us at the UU Perspective Podcast. You can find us at uuperspective.com. You'll see the show notes along with any links that our guests have mentioned, along with their bio and their quote, plus the answer to the big question of how is Unitarian Universalism as a religious denomination unique to serve and impact society? How would you answer that question? Also go to iTunes where you'll find the new perspective. Please subscribe and download your favorite episodes. Leave us a review to let us know what you've liked about the podcast, what you don't like, and any other guests that you might want to hear in the future. You can also find us at Stitcher Radio. So again, we thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.